0: Our reading this evening is the whole first chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour you land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counsellors as at the beginning Afterwards, you shall be called city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together.
1: Isaiah chapter 6, and then we will be reading afterwards from Isaiah um, chapter 40, one to 11. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew. And Wong called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled the holy seed is its stump. And now would you turn to Isaiah 40 uh, on page 599 of your church Bible. And we'll be reading verses one to 11. That is Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that our warfare is ended for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All fresh is as grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are our grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. Amen. Now let us pray before Roger comes up. Lord, we pray for Roger as he comes to speak to us from your word, that by the power of your own spirit we would hear your voice, that we would be transformed by your word, because it is through it that, like Isaiah, we can really know your character and who you are. For the grass withers and the flower feeds, but the word of our God will stand forever.
2: So we're beginning a new series in Isaiah, and later in the section we'll be preaching through this term. God says this, Thus says one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the attitude to come with to Isaiah 40 and the chapters that follow. We are starting Isaiah 40 through to uh, 55 and it's a really exciting um, series, a good time to turn up actually. And um, Why? Well. Because Isaiah is an amazing book. I love Isaiah. Absolutely amazing. Did you know, apart from the book of Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament? It's often on the lips of Jesus. And so it's no surprise that Isaiah is hugely important for seeing how the Old Testament teaches the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. In fact, Isaiah is the book that makes the phrase gospel, or good news, famous in the Bible. Did you notice that? Just I know we had a few readings. Stay in chapter 40 for the moment. So chapter 40 on page 599, and have a look at verse 9. Now, in the old times, a mountain was the equivalent of a PA system, so that's why they're always climbing mountains. Verse 9, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of gospel. Good news. And then, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Gospel. That's the beginning of our section. And then, if we were to read on all the way to the end of the, the block that we're going through this term, we'd get eventually to chapter 52 that says these famous words. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news. Gospel. Gospel of happiness who publishes salvation so this amazing old testament prophet is going to give us a clear and a compelling explanation of the gospel the good news of christianity in fact he's even going to predict and explain the cross of jesus christ 700 years before it happens it's an amazing book it's a good time to join us. And it's a good time whether you're sitting tonight with us as someone just looking into Christian things, wondering if it's true, wondering if it's for you. Maybe you've come from a Christian background, but now's the point of decision. Well, it's a good book for that. If God did predict the cross 700 years before it happened, that might be a reason to take it seriously. But it's a good book for us if we're, we've been Christians for years. And I hope, here's my plea, I hope that we kind of follow the whole series through on Sunday nights. That means if you can't make it, kind of tuning in online to the recordings. and Because lots of us will be familiar with where it ends up. Isaiah 53, famous verses that we've probably heard most Easter's or at communion services. Things like, he was wounded for our transgression. Or all we like sheep have gone astray, but the punishment was laid on him. We might know those phrases But actually, there's a plot, a storyline that builds through chapters 40 to 55, that builds towards the cross. And that's the story we're going to be telling on Sunday nights um, over the next term. So please do um, tune in with us um, through the whole series. But tonight, we're going to dip our toe in chapter 40, and then we're going to go backwards and fill in some of the stories so far. Let's just dip our toe into chapter 40. And I think as soon as we do, you start to realise that um, we're jumping into the middle of the story. So I'm going to read some verses and just think what questions might come into your minds. Chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. Ah, huh, okay. So why do they need comfort? It's a good question. Well, chapter 2. Speak tenderly because their warfare is ended. What warfare? Who with? Their iniquity is pardoned. Well, what iniquity? And why did it need pardoning? Perhaps most curiously, if you read on to verses 3 to 5, why is there a huge motorway being built through the desert? Why is that necessary? And then in verses 9 to 11, why is it such good news that God is coming to gather his people like a shepherd, to carry them? Where is he carrying them? From where? To where? Loads of questions, because, to state something really obvious, when you jump into chapter 40, you're jumping in right in the middle of the story, and it's a big story in Isaiah. A lot of questions have been raised, and before we can appreciate this gospel declaration, the good news, we are going to have to back up a bit, fill in some backgrounds. hear the bad news. And so tonight, this is an introductory talk. It says on the sheet, I'm going to cover 40 chapters. Don't worry, I'm not doing all 40. I'm not kind of, it would take us all, I mean, it would be wonderful, but it would take us all week if we covered everything, as I have said up to this point. Um, uh, Instead, I'm just going to mostly focus on chapter one, which operates as an introduction to the book. But let me say, as I do fill in some background to chapter 40, please don't think of this as a kind of dry lecture. On Bible, not at all. Remember how forty verse eight described God's verse, uh, God's voice. Sorry, forty verse eight. The word of our God stands forever. Grass comes and goes. People are like grass; they come and go. People's words come and go. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Which does actually mean you can look at the message of eighth century BC Jerusalem, which is what we're doing in Isaiah. And it still stands today, still has something deeply, personally relevant to us. So, we're effectively going to go back and see the story so far. So turn back to chapter 1 with me, turn back to chapter 1. And my hope is that once we've even begun to see what's going on in chapter 1 and these early chapters, well, the comfort of chapter 40 will start to mean something to us start to mean something amazing to us so let's get our bearings you'll see on the back of the sheet there's an outline of where we're going even with pictures Um, so there's an outline there and we are going to spend most of our time in chapter one let's begin with chapter one verse one which helps i think get our bearings in isaiah so one verse one the vision of isaiah the son of amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's a great verse. It gives us both the kind of setting of this book and, as we'll see, the style. So first off, the the setting, the historical setting. When and where was Isaiah speaking? Well, I realise that kind of 8th century BC kings of Judah may not be everyone's mastermind topic if you had to choose one to specialise in. But if you look at that verse, even just on, on face value, you can see that Isaiah spoke for a long time. Multiple kings reigns, and probably at least six decades of ministry. But more important than he spoke for a long time was the turbulent nature of the times he spoke in. This was a period of real political upheaval. So I know today we think politics has gone crazy, but actually... It was far more chaotic and dangerous in this period of Middle Eastern history. Isaiah is working in Judah, so that's the kind of southern bit of Israel. And at one point, uh, their northern neighbors, so the, the northern ten tribes, gang up against them with Syria as, a, as an ally. Uh, that's the first crisis. Those tribes get destroyed and deported by Assyria, who actually are such big bullies, they're a huge superpower that they then threaten Judah with destruction. They survive that crisis. You can read about that with Hezekiah when he breathes a huge sigh of relief after trusting God to rescue them. But soon after that, a new bully on the block, Babylon. And Babylon will be the ones who take Judah and Jerusalem into exile. So we think the impending doom of Brexit or whatever is pretty bad. We're used, I guess, or getting used to opening the papers and, and being shocked by the headlines, whether it's this side of the Atlantic or the other. We wonder what is going to happen with Russia. Well, in Isaiah's days, the headlines were far worse, far worse. Real and present danger was threatening Jerusalem's very existence, which makes it all the more striking as we read on to this, into this book, that Isaiah thinks politics is not the problem. He's crystal clear on that. When everyone else is saying, how do we solve our politics, Isaiah sees that's not the real problem. We'll get to that later. That's the setting. Secondly, um, the style. Now, again, there's a clue in 1 verse 1. Let me just read it again. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. This book's described as the vision. What's that getting at? At one level, it's just a kind of clue that he's got a kind of visual style. There's lots of poetic imagery. It's, it's supposed to engage our imaginations, our hearts. Spot two, it's a vision about, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So it's a kind of, it's God given 2020 vision about this city what it's like, where it's headed. But the most important thing I want you to notice about those first couple of words is how many visions Isaiah is supposed to have. Just have a look. One, singular. One vision that Isaiah had concerning Jerusalem and Judah. That's really striking because the book itself is made up of loads of different oracles, loads of songs and poems and sermons. But together... Or they make a single vision. So it is a kind of now that's what I call Isaiah. It's a kind of compilation of his life work. Or if pop music isn't your thing, it's like a, a really well curated gallery with lots of pictures hanging. The kind of life's work of a master prophet. But with all those contrasting pictures, all those different oracles, well, there's one single vision. God gave him a coherent story to say about Judah and Jerusalem. Why am I making such a big deal of that? Well, it's quite important because over the last couple of hundred of years, some people have stressed how different bits of Isaiah sound. And Some people would say the bit we're studying over this term is written by a different person at a different time. But actually, there are kind of ties all the way through the book, thematic and linguistic. But most importantly, the book itself claims Coherence, this is one vision that Isaiah saw concerning Jerusalem and Judah. So, that's the introduction over. What did Isaiah see about Jerusalem? What was this vision? Well, chapter 1 tells us. This brings us to our first point. Isaiah was given a before and after vision of this city. Just have a look at, if you're in chapter 1, verse 21. So page 567, chapter 1, verse 21, which Jesse read for us. Let me read it again. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver's become dross, your best mind mixed with water, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. There is something rotten in the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah sees that in God's sight, this city is rotten. It's corrupt. The faithful city has become corrupt. She was founded full of justice, but now she's full of thieves. And the weak are the ones who are suffering. The widows, the orphans, they're being taken advantage of. The leadership particularly is corrupt. Um, Don't turn to it, but in chapter 3, verse 14, just listen to this. God says to the rulers, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people by grinding the face of the poor? That's the leaders, but it's not just the leaders. Flick across to chapter 5. Flick across to chapter 5 with me. And I'll quickly run us through some verses, just so we get a feel for this city. Chapter 5, verse 8. 5, verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, so they are greedy property owners making other people homeless. Or chapter 5, verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drinks. There are greedy drunkards living to get wasted with no thought of God. Or 5 verse 18, woe to those who lie. And when you see what the lie is, verse 19, well, it's the lie that what God says is irrelevant now. They they say this kind of sarcastic, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, (laughs) as if God's going to speak as if what God says is relevant. Or verse 20, this is striking, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So these people are redefining what God says is right or wrong, deciding for themselves. Or verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Verse 23, woe to those who take bribes. The city's rotten, it's corrupt. Societal breakdown, greedy business practices, moral chaos, substance abuse, lying leaders, and a rejection of God's word, God's moral instruction. I wonder if any of that rings a bell today. This is God's verdict on Jerusalem. It's Isaiah's vision of the current state of the city the faithful cities corrupt. The silver has turned to dross. But it's not actually just internal problems, corruption. The city's also facing threats from outside. That's why on the picture, the black, dark, kind of bad city picture, I've put threatened. So flick back to chapter 1 again. I'm sorry, you have to do lots of turning. It's worth it. Chapter 1, verse 7. Look okay, at how they're facing attack. So verse 7, your country, of chapter 1, your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, follow it, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. So is becoming a bit of a disaster zone. But what about Jerusalem? Well, verse 8 tells us about that. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. Like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. What's that saying? It's saying Jerusalem has become like a shed in an allotment. As in, it's the last thing standing. The land's been flattened. Jerusalem's the last thing standing, like a city under siege. Which is to say, the city's not just corrupt on the inside, but threatened from the outside. Like I said at the start, if you'd opened a newspaper, they would have been full of urgent headlines. Not Project Fear, actual terror as the superpowers around sharpen their weapons. That's what Isaiah saw about Jerusalem. (laughs) It's in serious trouble. But actually, that's half of what Isaiah saw about Jerusalem. So... Flick your eyes back. We we saw chapter one, verse twenty one. This faithful city has become a whore, but scan your eyes down to chapter one, verse twenty-six, and suddenly there's good news for the city, chapter one, verse twenty-six, where God says, I will restore your judges at the first, and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. In fact, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice. I said Isaiah is sometimes like a picture gallery. And often, two very different pictures are hung right next to each other. To see it even more strikingly, look at chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come another picture of Zion. It will come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Verse 3, many people shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion this city shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between nations, decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's an extraordinary picture. So on the one hand, current Jerusalem, corrupt on the inside, ignoring what God says, and the nations coming in to pillage. But in the latter days, another picture hanging in the gallery, Well, the law of God will flow right out of Zion. This is a faithful city. And actually the nations will be coming in to learn. And there'll be global peace. Do you see the contrast? I mean, it's extraordinary. And we could go on and on. There's another one in chapter four that's even more gleaming in its hope amidst loads of pictures of chaos. We could flick on to where the book ends, chapter 60, 61, amazing pictures of Zion. All the bits you'd recognize from Revelation. No more tears, no more pain, no more death. Extraordinary pictures of where this city will end up. And for, some, for that reason, some people call Isaiah a tale of two cities. His vision is a before and after. The corrupt city he's working in. And this wonderful city that God's promised But here's the thing, when you see those two pictures put next to each other, what question do you ask? And I don't just mean kind of reading about it in Edinburgh nice and comfortable. I mean, think yourself back in the shoes of those listening to Isaiah. People too scared to walk down the alleys of their city because it's corrupt. Well, what question would you be asking? I think it's the question, the big question of the whole book. The question of how, how on earth can we go from where we are to be that kind of city? Do you see that that could be a burning issue? How can this be possible, Isaiah? I mean, it's all very nice saying there's a glorious future, but have you seen the headlines? Do you know what it's like out there? How is it even possible? That's why on the handout I've put that sideways arrow We've got those two pictures, and the big book question is how? How do you get from A to B? How do you get from a corrupt city to a faithful city? How can God purify his city? God does promise it's going to happen. Chapter 1, verse 26. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Verse 27 of chapter 1, Zion shall be redeemed by justice. God says there's a future for this city, but how on earth can we get there? That's the big question of the book. And the whole book, I think, is answering that question in different ways. More particularly, the section we're studying through these Sunday nights is going to ask the question, how can people get there? How can people like us, people like them, get there? to this perfect, heavenly city. And that's why chapter 40 starts with comfort, because there is an answer. The gospel, good news, is the answer. But before we turn to good news, I think it's really important we understand what the real problem was. So we've seen there's a before and after, a rotten city and a future glorious city, but we need to move on to our second point, which is Isaiah's diagnosis of why things were so bad. And this, so point two, why are things so bad? Well, we've said Jerusalem was a state. It was, it was kind of corrupt from bottom to top in society, and it was attacked from left to right. But, but from God's perspective, what's the real issue? What's actually gone wrong in this city? Well, that's where the book begins. So all the way back to the start of chapter one. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. So don't worry if you're tired of turning. Let's just look at how the book starts. Interestingly, most big prophetic books start with the call of the prophets. But Isaiah delays that to chapter six. We heard it read. Because this is how God wants to start. See if you can put your finger on the problem as I read it from verse two. Hear, O heavens, Give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. Isaiah opens saying, yes, there's relational breakdown across society. So yes, the relationship between rich and poor is corrupt or between the judiciary and the victims, it's corrupt. Or between the drunkard and the wine bottle or between the political leaders and the truth. Yes, all that's in a mess. But the fundamental relationship problem is with God. Look at it, verse 2. Children I've reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. Or in verse 4, why are the children dealing corruptly? Why is it not safe to walk around these streets or to apply to the courts or to believe what leaders say on TV? Well, because they've forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel. That's where the book opens. The real problem with this rotten city is sin. Your biggest problem, says Isaiah. To us, I guess he'd say it's not Brexit, it's not Trump, it's Russia. What he said to them was it's not the threats to the north. It's not the threat of Assyria. It's not the looming threat of Babylon. No, they're symptoms of the real disease, the real problem. are personal rebellion against God. He says, when that vertical relationship goes wrong, horizontal chaos ensues. And the way the living God speaks in chapter 1, I think he wants us just to feel how serious this rebellion is. It's serious for lots of reasons. I mean, from verse 3, it's serious just because it's so outrageous. It's so ungrateful. So the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know so even, even kind of stupid beasts like ox and donkeys know who provides their food. They at least get that. They know who's keeping them alive, providing for them. But at this point, Israel doesn't get it. They're rejecting their creator, their sustainer. It's daft, as well as Outrageous. And while in Edinburgh and in the UK, we're not quite like Jerusalem and Judah, we're not kind of specially set up as a country like they were, but actually the same argument applies to us. We're no better than this. We don't get it. We don't get that our Creator provides everything we have. And it's deadly serious, because this kind of rebellion, it actually can make God our enemy. Without Jesus... This kind of attitude to God makes him our enemy. Look at verse 5. There are two questions in verse 5. I want you to think about the connection. Verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? There's a real connection between those questions for Jerusalem in the 8th century. The reason they're losing their security is because they're rejecting their God. Now, for them, there was a direct connection between sin and national punishment. That's because God had made promises that if they, at Mount Sinai, when he formed the covenant with them, he made promises that if they rejected him, they would be punished. If they obeyed him, they'd be blessed. He said, I'll fire lots of warning shots across your bow. But here the warning shots have been coming and coming, and coming. Verse seven, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In fact, verse nine makes it clear that the only reason Jerusalem has been spared is God's grace. Verse nine, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were notoriously wicked cities that were completely um, completely destroyed by god's judgment in the old testament and here is a sigh of relief that they didn't get the sodom and gomorrah treatment but then look at how god refers to them verse 10 hear the word of the lord you rulers of sodom give ear to the teaching of our god you people of gomorrah I think it's absolutely shocking. In God's grace, you may not have been uh, totally obliterated yet, but actually, it's not because you're any better. Sin makes God our enemy. It's shocking God would describe his people that way. And again, if we're sitting comfortably and thinking, well, that's ancient history. God used to feel like that. Well, remember, God is holy, holy, holy. He doesn't change. He still feels the same way about rebellion. And all of us naturally have rebelled against our maker. Sometimes people think that just because we're British or polite or churchgoers or educated or middle class or pretty nice in public or whatever it is, that somehow God's bound to be on our side. But let me tell you, Judah and Jerusalem had all the racial heritage, the religious pedigree, the historical privileges, the theological education, everything you could wish for to give them a head start. And God can still say of them, listen to me, people of Gomorrah. Sometimes people realize that we're not good enough for God and think that religion is what will plug the gap. If I just do some prayers or go to church or give some money, that will plug the gap between where I'm at and where God, the holy God, is. Let's just look from verses 11 onwards how God feels about that solution. These are even more shocking. Verse 11. What is to me the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough. I of burnt offerings of rams and beasts. I don't delight in blood of bulls. It's really striking because those are things God has asked for. But look at how he feels, verse 12. Who's required of you this trampling of my courts? He's saying, just get out my sight. I, I don't want your dirty feet on my temple carpets. Stop bringing vain offerings, he says. There's no point. Their incense is an abomination to him. He says he cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Verse 14, he says, my soul hates your feasts. They're wearying to me. I count down the minutes till they finish. Verse 15, shockingly, even when you pray, I will not listen. It's a sobering passage, isn't it? I don't know if you felt that as, as it was read, but, that God here is anti-religion. Even good things that he's told them to do, like pray and give offerings. He can't stand it. Why? Well, all the way through he tells us because of their iniquity, their sin, their rebellion. To verse 13, I can't bear your assemblies. When they come with iniquity, or verse 15, why can't he look at their hands when they pray? Because they're covered with blood, the blood of the poor that they've been grinding to make a profit. They just, they stink, they, they reek of corruption to a holy God. God can't stomach it, that's the language. That's why sin is the real problem, and I hope you can see from that that rituals aren't going to solve it. And I'm stressing that because it's a very common view, isn't it? It's a very common view that yes, none of us are quite living up to God's standards, but But a bit of religion here and there keeps God on side. So whether it's uh, being a minister, like me, or praying five times a day, or fasting for a whole month, or coming here every week, even in the evenings, or giving loads of money to church. The fact is, when we're tainted with sin, it's not going to impress God, not in the slightest. Actually, it makes it worse here. He hates the hypocrisy of this city, praying to a God they ignore the rest of the time. Religion is making it worse. So, where does that leave them? Where does it leave us? Well, the answer for 8th century BC Jerusalem is actually the same answer for every nation in the world it's that judgment was going to fall, judgment was certainly coming. That's our final point. we'll only touch on it briefly. For Judah, it meant that exile was coming. When we get to chapter 39 in the story of Isaiah, "Exile is coming. Babylon are coming. You will be taken out of the land. The city will fall." But Isaiah says that kind of final judgment for them was actually is a picture of what happens to all nations. Chapters 13 to 27, we don't have time to read them, you'll be relieved, but 13 to 27 go round the known world, every nation around them, showing that the holy God doesn't lessen his standards for other nations. Chapter 24 is a terrifying picture of judgment on everyone. Do you remember what Isaiah said at his commission? He sees the holy, holy, holy God in chapter 6, his response wasn't... Wow, I've always wanted to see you. His response was, Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. And the simple fact that every Christian would sign up to is that but for the Lord Jesus, that's exactly where I stand before a holy God. Woe is me. My lips aren't clean. My hands aren't clean. My life isn't clean. My record isn't clean. Which means there's a kind of sharper edge to the question about this glorious city that I started with. It's all very well God clearing up his city, producing a faithful, righteous holy, perfect city, a new creation where there's no sin. That's all very well, but how could any of us get there? See the issue? It's all very well God cleaning things up on the earth, in the city, but how could any of us be clean enough to be allowed in? And that's what chapters 40 to 55 are about. That's what Sunday evenings this term are about. How can any of us be made clean enough to walk into a perfect new world, this new creation, this new city of Zion? Let me close by reading those verses from chapter 40 again. And I hope they mean something slightly more to us than they did at the start. You've got to remember, by the time to the audience these words were written to, They've already seen that their sin has made God their enemy. They've already faced judgment. They're already sitting in Babylon, wondering if there's any hope. And in Isaiah 40, verse 1, God says, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. But far more importantly than that, say to her that her iniquity ended is pardoned. Her iniquity is pardoned. She is received from the Lord's hand double, that is an exact match, for her sins. Having diagnosed in the first half of the book that the real problem is not politics, but sin, on these Sunday nights, we're going to see the gospel, God's good news, his solution to our sin how to make us clean enough for a perfect world. And if you're someone here tonight and you think you need that, that you don't yet have it, and you'd like an explanation, come and talk to me. I haven't got time to explain it now, but come and talk to me. But I'm going to lead us in prayer as we close. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Cry to her that her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Father, creator, holy, holy, holy one, please help us to appreciate your amazing good news. Help us to appreciate your gospel. Help us to appreciate that we who should be your enemies have become your children through the cross and sacrifice of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.